Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Aspect of being a Christian. Um, the title of the message is A Discipline of Celebration. I don't know who that girl is, but I, I found that picture online, and every time I look at her, it makes me so happy. I, I just, I want to be young again when I see her face. Just, you see that face? That's a face of just happy to be alive and doesn't care about anything else. And that's, that sense of joy, celebration that we're supposed to feel is such an important part of what it means to be Christian. And I'm going to just challenge some of you in particular. I'm not going to make eye contact with any of you, but I, you know who you are. This has been a very challenging part of the Christian experience for you. You're getting sick and tired of people asking you, is everything okay? And you're like, yes, everything's fine. This is just how I look. Leave me alone. And it could be that everywhere you go, the countenance you wear is one that is dour and joyless. In fact, it's not just joyless for you, but you walk in a room and it sucks the joy out of the air. I don't know if you realize that's the effect you might be having on people, but I'm not saying this to criticize you, but I hope that somehow this morning the Word of God sets you free to experience a side of being Christian that you desperately need to understand if you'll have any idea why it's called good news. This celebration that we're talking about is not just a peripheral secondary part of our faith. It is at the heart of it. I believe with all my heart that God is the happiest being in the universe. And we generally tend to project onto God how we see ourselves. And a lot of people think God is a sourpuss, an angry guy on a throne with lightning rods in his hand like Zeus in the old Greek mythology, looking for targets down on earth. That is absolutely not how God is. God is the happiest being in the world. And I believe he looks down at some of us and goes, aren't you my kids? Why so serious? Sorry, I had to throw a Batman illusion in there. You know, ask most people around this time of the year, what are you thankful for? And you're going to get a pretty standard milquetoast response. You're going to hear things like, I'm I'm happy to be in a country where I can vote freely and go to church and have a house to live in and I've got family and all these things. And, you know, you'll get a pretty standard list. And what surprises me is it's going to be a list that's usually pretty short. I mean, that conversation will last all of two minutes probably. And it'll be a pretty uncreative, unimaginative list. I could take your list and probably give it to another person and go, yeah, that's pretty much my list. And that's really surprising if you pause to think about it, because as Americans, we live in a country that enjoys perhaps the highest standard of living on earth outside of Dubai, right? I mean, we enjoy just the highest standard of living, and yet we are so hard-pressed. Even those of us in the church who know God are hard-pressed at times to list the many things that we're thankful for or even to be creative about it. And then if it happens that the question is asked of you when you're going through a rough spot in your life, chances are you can't think of a single thing that you're thankful for because there's so many things in the world in your life to be unthankful for. And that's also shocking considering that we have in our hearts the greatest news and the greatest gift that has ever been extended to human beings. So we want to talk about that because I really believe 
that the capacity for joy and thanksgiving, which are very related, are things that need to be developed more and are not exercised enough in the lives of Christians. I believe it's not just something that comes out of us. It's something that is cultivated and developed over time as a spiritual discipline. And that's what, what this text really is it, touching on in some ways. Uh, this, this text that we read this morning, that Jen read, is really not just about the spiritual di- discipline of celebration, but it lays the foundation for how we understand how to do it. And so in the first half of this message, I'm going to give you about 10 minutes of just unpacking the passage and then give you a chance to reflect. We're going to sing a song together. And then the second half of the message, I'm going to give you a few practical things about what that looks like to practice the discipline of celebration. Is that okay with you? You with me? All right. In the church at Ephesus, a church that Paul loved very dearly, there were some troublemakers who were spreading a very bad teaching. They were, they were teaching what Paul said was actually not a Christianity at all, but such a perversion of the Christian faith, it could no longer be called anything having to do with Christianity. And what they were teaching was that what God really wants from us is to be so free of all worldly desires that all we ever want is him and, and religious things. And any time you sense any pleasure, God is displeased with your weakness and need to root it out of you. Now, that spirit was very attractive to people who were coming out of a Greek dualism as a background because the Greeks in those days all believed flesh is bad, spirit is good. Religion is good, worldly life is evil. That duality still lives on today. I still hear people saying things like, I feel like we're having too much fun. And they're saying that not because it's been a long time since they served the Lord, but just the experience of wild abandon, of feeling like that girl looks, makes them feel uneasy. Like maybe life isn't supposed to feel this good. I feel like there should still be something to feel bad about. And there are some people still today who are intensely uncomfortable with pleasure. This is about getting in touch with God's absolute desire that we should experience pleasure in this earthly life. Now, I've said a very dangerous thing. Obviously, I can't end there, or you will all run from this place doing all kinds of unspeakable things in the name of the sermon. So I want to unpack that a little bit for you, but I don't want to scale too, too much back away from what I just said, because that's just a plain statement of truth. God intends for his children to experience pleasure. If you ever have been a parent or love the small child, you know exactly what I'm saying. When you delight in the pleasure of your children, God wants that for his children. Now, these guys who are running around in Ephesus spreading the lie that what God really wants is for us to have a dry, joyless, unpleasant experience that is all about discipline and hard labor, that's that's the kind of Christianity they were forwarding. And so they thought the the healthiest, most spiritual guys are the ones who are always going, hmm. Yeah, that exegesis was right on spot. Good one. And they walk out of the place fully agreeing with the word of God and exuding absolutely none of it. He says of them that they are influenced by demons. Now, we're going to unpack that a little more in a second. What were these guys doing? They were denying people some of the basic pleasures in life. And specifically, Paul mentions to Timothy, these guys especially are isolating two things. They're isolating marriage 
saying we should not marry if those who are truly spiritual don't need marriage. Marriage is a crutch for the weak. You should only need God, but if you've got to have a girl or a, a guy, go for it. You're weak, but we understand. That's the Christianity these guys were forwarding. That might sound familiar to some of you because you might have been raised in a church that between the lines parenthetically said things like that. That if you need any other human being, you're not holy before God. It's ludicrous. It's terrible theology, but it plays well to religious-minded folks. They, and by the way, when he says marriage, the subtext clearly, and all scholars agree, is he's also especially referring to marital intimacy. I don't know if there's young people in the room. That's why I'm, I'm using a code word for you know what. <clears throat> if you're confused, ask a grown-up next to you later on. He also says that they were denying people the eating of certain foods. And when we study ancient documents, what we discover is there was a very, very pervasive teaching that was forbidding people from eating animal products. Here's another way of putting it. They were forwarding a vegetarian lifestyle as inherently spiritual. Now, I'm borderline vegetarian these days. I I don't know how this happened. Um, Some guys on our staff, one guy in particular, calls me a woman because of it. It's a choice, but it's not because I think it's evil to eat innocent animals. I love animals. They are delicious. Okay? I think, though, that those people who say you shouldn't do it because somehow it weakens your spirituality, that's wrong. You do not attach a spiritual significance to the the forbidding of something which God has permitted. And he says of these people, they are under the influence of demons. In other words, they are drunk on the teaching of the devil. That's a very surprising, shocking turn of events because normally when you think about the influence of the devil, you think of people taking their clothes off, getting drunk, partying wildly. That's what you usually think of is the devil's influence leads us to indulgence. But in this case, Paul's saying the devil's influence also leads, on the other hand, to a disproportionate and unhealthy abstinence. To this idea that if that kind of debauchery and partying is hateful to God, then the thing God must love is that total absence of pleasure. That's what God must be after. That is just as much a demonic aberration of the truth as anything else. And what he says to us is, if you think that it is somehow spiritual to experience no pleasure in this life, you have no idea what God is like. Let me ask you something. Why are there like 80 different species of dogs, breeds of dog? Why are there so many kinds of insects? Why are there so many kinds of flowers? Why does even a rainbow have that many colors? Do you think God is a boring fellow? Do you think God is a guy who is totally utilitarian? Let's just put one species of dog down there, one breed, because that's all they need. I think God was having fun. He goes, what if I pushed this one's nose in and got a pug and then I made it all bald and got, you know, and he's just, he's doing all kinds of things to show us he loves the freedom of expression, the variety in life. He's a God who loves the idea of extravagant unnecessity. Do you understand what I'm saying? We think in our puritanical spirit that the only thing that honors God is when we strip life down to its bare necessities, its essentials, and somehow we spiritualize that and say, that's pleasing to God. And God says, have you looked around the world you live in? Does that in any way reflect the guy who made this place? Even in its fallenness, there is life everywhere in abundance. And the lie that these guys were guilty of 
was somehow distorting what God is like for people who are trying to find out and get into a relationship with him. He says of them also that they're not, they're not, it's not just the demons that are doing this. It's these teachers, these false teachers. He calls them hypocritical liars. Here's really what he means. That's a very strong accusation. He's saying not only is what they're saying a lie, but their own very lives are a lie. Here's what he meant by that. They say that this is spiritual and good, but they don't even believe their own garbage. In their heart of hearts, living this austere lifestyle, they're miserable they just don't want you to know that they're weak. And so they say, I love wearing sackcloth and ashes and eating cream cauliflower 24 hours a day. I love it. But they don't. In their flesh, in their hearts, they yearn for the love of a man or a woman. The opposite of whatever you are. They long for it. And when they feel that, especially around springtime, rolling, down, you know, rolling around, and they see everybody falling in love, and they feel it, and what do they do? Instead of honoring what God has deposited, they suppress that truth with a false spirituality that says, that's weakness welling up in me. I need to squash it. Now keep in mind, God has called some to be single and some to be vegetarian for a different variety of reasons. But it is by far the exception and not the rule for humanity. What they've done is every time they felt God's natural inclinations toward receiving his goodness... Welling up in them, they squashed it down. They pressed it down. Just like those women who wear, you know, in those old days, they wear those, what are they called corsets? And then they tight real hard, and, and they're, like, they're walking around like this, and you pull one string, boom, it all comes out. It's all pent up. That's what they've been doing with their souls. And he says of that, very graphic language, it's like they were, they were searing their conscience with a hot iron. The Greek word for that word seer is kateriadzo, from where we get the English word cauterize. Any medical people here? I was a surgical tech for a year. Cauterization of human flesh is disgusting. You take this hot thing and you, and it just it smells like bad Fritos. Okay? And what you're basically doing is burning the flesh to close up a wound or a bleeding part, and it, it, it scars it. And it makes it numb. If there were nerves in that part of the skin, they ain't there anymore. And that's what he says of these people who lie to themselves and then spread that miserable lie to others. Is that it's like their own hearts, their consciences are scar tissue now because they have suppressed the truth of God so habitually they can't even feel genuine pleasure anymore. And he says of that, that is absolutely not God's plan for the human experience. Are you with me so far? Because obviously I'm going to have to unpack this even a little bit more to sharpen because some of you who grew up in more puritanical traditions are very uncomfortable, perhaps even slightly angry with what I'm saying right now. You might perceive a danger in what I'm saying, and I'll just comfort you by saying I'm with you. There's a great danger in what I'm saying. Huge danger. The second half of the message will try to undo some of the dangers. You know, really... This idea of abstinence, according to these liars in the Ephesian church, was tragic because it was so unnecessary. Because what, what Paul writes is, these gifts which they're denying are legitimate gifts which God gave us, intending that they are received with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. In other words, we don't just grudgingly go, all right, Lord, I'm weak, thank you. I, you see how weak I am. He wants us to go, thank you. I've been really wanting this. 
and you gave it to me, and I'm so grateful. And to receive the gifts God is extending to his children with freedom and with gratitude. Now, most of us, when you ask, what are you thankful for? We think of the really big things, but it's the mundane things that lay a foundation in our hearts for a growing capacity to be grateful. I'm convinced one of the unhealthiest poisons, toxins, in the spiritual life is an attitude of ingratitude. I see it all the time. People walk in and they want to have a conversation with you and their, their, beginning, their starting point is, I get nothing in this life. I got nothing to be thankful for. I'm entitled to more and I never get it. And there's this, there's this attitude of just being unthankful, of choosing not to see how much goodness surrounds them already. The fact is, they have, they have failed to see all the gratitude that surrounds them, so then when they need it, they can't see it at all. It's like the trust fund kid who sits around on his yacht with $100 million in the bank and whines all day about how bored he is and what a cruddy life he's got and how his parents are never home. Let me get out the violin and play for you. Did you pause to think about what you have? Not that that's a good thing, right? But at least start there. Don't act like you've got nothing good if you haven't paused to actually look around and open your eyes and see that even now, in the valley of despair, God has deposited visible signs of his goodness in your life. It's interesting how the things we complain about today are the very things our hearts long for yesterday. The young man who says, man, when I finish this education and get my real job and get my own money, I'll be happy. It's the same guy whining about his job today. The young lady says, man, when I finally get a man to love me and marry me and he sweeps me away, I'll be happy. And she's the one going, Pastor Dave, I need to talk to you about this loser, which I done married. And then they say, man, if I could just have the fruit of my wombs spring forth in new life and have a baby like everyone else. And then at four in the morning, they're going, can I return it? I saved the receipt. I want to be done with this. It's interesting how every new provision of God that fulfills the longing of our hearts yesterday becomes tomorrow's complaint. That's a sign that a muscle in our soul has not been properly cultivated and developed. I, I, I suggest to you today that you can't begin with just conjuring up a feeling of gratitude where you don't really see anything. But I suggest to you that the way you begin to learn this discipline of celebration, is to intentionally look for God in the ordinary things of life. You'd be astounded at how much you see of God's goodness if you will just actively look for him. I, I love what G.K. Chesterton wrote. Are you guys familiar with G.K. Chesterton? He's a, he's a guy who lived about 100, 150 years ago. He wrote some really insightful things about the Christian faith. And I love this quote. He's speaking about how we get so bored of life. We have this droopy-eyed, been-there-done-that attitude. And yet God is so different from us. Listen to what he writes. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. Parents know what I'm talking about, right? And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. 
But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I love that last line. I think it so accurately describes the sophisticated, bored, wearied spirit of our American generation today. Looking around at all the goodness that surrounds us, we're already sick of being on the planet. We're already numb to the almost intoxicating, embarrassing abundance of goodness around us so that we still are able to find room to complain and despair even now. And yes, you pray. How many of you have the same prayer every meal? I mean, for years, let me just tell you, for at least 15 years in my Christian life, this is what I literally said before every meal. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful meal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Sometimes I could actually be writing a letter while I'm saying it. It just comes out of me. Do you have that prayer that's sort of rattled off? You feel like you're going to get indigestion if you don't say it, so you just kind of say it and maybe you'll digest better. You know, it's interesting how in the most monotonous, repetitive things, we stop looking for God. They become the new baseline of our entitlement, of the life we deserve to have at least, at the very least. Instead of realizing that this morning, while you were eating breakfast, hundreds of children around the world died because they didn't have a morsel to eat. You know, this idea of eating a meal and saying, I hate this cereal, is so repugnant to God. It's so repugnant to him. Because it signals to him that we've stopped looking for him in the abundance of things he provides every day to say to you, You are so loved. You are so taken care of. How could you ever doubt? How could you ever fail to see that? And that's why I want to pause for this half of the message. I want to leave you with that thought. Could it be that we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we? That he still delights every time he hears us pray. Each time you repent, he doesn't roll his eyes and go, there he goes again. He's so happy that you finally come. Could it be that God does not get bored nearly as easily of life as we do? And I want you to reflect on that for a little while. Uh, in fact, I'm going to invite a few members of praise to come and just offer a little bit of background music. It gives you a, 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 a sense of engaging not with one another right now, but with God and with your own heart. And I want you to look deep and invite the Lord to examine you right now. Are you, in general, a pretty thankless person? Are your eyes always on what you don't have yet? I know that's a pretty tired, routine message to hear in church, but hopefully this this treatment of the text has helped open it up to you. God has given you so many things with the intention that you would receive them with thanksgiving, and that somehow through it, you would be drawn closer to him. Is that happening right now in your life?
And if it isn't, I only know one solution to that problem. It is not to strain, it is to ask. God, help me see you more. Help me to look for you more in the most trivial things of life. Help me. Let's bow for a little while and have some reflection together, and we'll sing a song. As you continue to pray, it may also be that some of you have grown up in a more austere upbringing. And someone along the way lied to you, the same lie that the Ephesian church was receiving. And so today you've grown up thinking that somehow the height of spirituality is to be dour and joyless. And okay with the fact that there is no pleasure in your life. I'm going to ask if you would pray that the Holy Spirit would now stir your heart to the truth. That lie will not go out of you easily. But ask God to come and reveal to you what truth is. And if need be, to set you free.
imagine that you're convinced that we do need to start looking for God in the everyday blessings of life. How do you do that in a world that looks like ours? How do you do that in a world that is going at 100 miles an hour nonstop, where insomnia is the rule and not the exception? How do you do it? I want to give you some practical guidelines for the practice of the discipline of celebration. And if you'll heed these things and start putting some of them into practice, I think it'll revolutionize the way you feel about your relationship with God, and even about your life. The first thing I want to give you is this. You need to slow down. Have you guys ever seen marathons on TV? I watched the marathons in the Olympics. I, I didn't think it's possible to watch guys run 26 miles and it would be good television. They managed to do it. I watched the entire two and a half hours coverage of the marathon until the first guy ran across the tape. And if you watch marathon runners, it's an interesting thing. They never miss a beat. They're running, and these guys hold out water, and what do they do? 
They grab it, they pour some on themselves, they drink some, and then they just drop the cup and keep running. They never slow down. That's the wrong way to receive a gift. Can you imagine if you, you had a birthday party and as people were coming out of the car, you're like, oh, don't take your coats off. Where's your gift? Where's your gift? Where's your gift? See ya. And you just, wouldn't that be a pretty bad way to have a birthday party? I think in order for a gift to be received, it requires some intentionality. There's got to be a sense of transaction taking place. Acknowledgement is really what I'm getting at. How many of you guys who went to U of I took Japanese tea ceremony class? Anybody? I'm amazed. A few of you. When I was a college student, almost every guy took it because they wanted to impress the girls or because there was a girl they already wanted to impress who was taking the class. But if you take Japanese tea ceremony, I never took it. You know, I had too much dignity to take it. But I pretty much learned it from all the girls that took it. And there's so much drama. I'm like, dude, it's just tea. Give me some. They're like, oh, no, no, no. You've got to turn the pot. And, you know, it's all this. It's so slow. It's almost like um, the anticipation makes the tea taste better. Or maybe that's just their way of cooling it off. I don't know. But when it's finally done and you receive it, you don't just go, thank you. Two hands, right? Isn't that the Asian way to receive something? Didn't you get smacked all the time when an adult was giving you something? If you're Asian and you try to get something from somebody with one hand, you got smacked all the time. You get things from two hands from adults. You, you, you receive it. You don't just grab it. You receive it. So many times in this passage, it says these good gifts which God gives, they're intended to be received. Not just eaten, drunk, experienced, lived through, but received. And I'm absolutely convinced it's not possible to do that in a hurry. In order to receive something from God, to acknowledge Him in it, there's got to be a little time, a little pace, where you just slow it all down and you dwell with Him for a while. This is what the the discipline of celebration is about. It's about slowing down so you can intentionally look for and see God in the midst of your life. And some of us are moving way too fast for that to ever happen. And I use that pronoun intentionally, some of us. I'm not talking to you. I am one of those people in this hyper-caffeinated, insomniac, thousand-mile-an-hour, take the cup while you're running and throw the cup behind you kind of life. That's me. I know for a fact that's some of you. And some of you are really going to lose out if you don't slow down. I've been realizing this more and more. Some of the most precious gifts God has deposited in your life, you're totally missing while you're headlong in pursuit of something else you think is important. And someday you look back in time and find yourself weeping over photos where you're there, but you don't even remember the day. Your life is a blur. And you think that what you're chasing is so all important. The net effect of it is you will have lost your life in the pursuit of a fake treasure. And you're not going to know that until you finally slow down and smell a few roses around you. Here's a second piece of advice in the discipline of celebration. Cut down. Just got to cut down a little bit. One of the dangers of Paul's teaching, I'm sorry, I'm chewing on a cough drop because I have a sore throat. (laughs) One of the dangers of Paul's teaching is that some can misinterpret it as an invitation not to celebration, but to hedonism. 
you know the difference between celebration and hedonism? Hedonism is totally American. It is more is better. More, 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 more. And then when I ha- I'm sick of that, just supersize it. Maybe that'll make it better. If we have a, a, a Whopper, maybe a double Whopper is going to be better than a Whopper. And then I once saw a triple hamburger. How disgusting is that? I once ordered one and tried to open my mouth. I got locked jaw. I, I couldn't shut my mouth on that thing. That's disgusting. And it is yet so American to presume that quantity is king. That somehow true enjoyment of life is to be found in abundance alone. That's a pretty predictable message from a pastor. But I want you to see what it says in this verse. Note this in verse 4. For everything God created is good. What he's saying is not everything is good. And even among good things, not everything good is equally good. But in all the goodness available to us in this life, it is the things which God has naturally made, the created order, things that he has provided in this earth that hold for us the greatest potential for satisfaction. That doesn't mean man-made things cannot be good, but when we tap into the rawness of the things God has made, there is for us a much deeper, richer satisfaction that is made available. I think we need to cut down in at least two important ways. The first way we need to cut down is, I think we need to learn to push aside some of the man-made distractions in our world to make more space in our lives for the God-made blessings and enjoyments in this world. Does that make sense to you? Here's what I mean by that. There are a lot of things in this world, technology, forms of entertainment, which I have no problem with. I don't think they're bad things, but they become primary things to the exclusion of other naturally occurring things. Children are notorious for this. How many of you parents are always yelling at your kids, go outside, feel the sun, be a kid. What is wrong with you? You're like little troglodyte, cave-dwelling little... Get outside and be young. What is your problem? And the kids are like, no, don't take away our video games and our television. It's a problem. But there is such a joy. When the kids finally get pushed out the door, you hear the noises. Within five minutes, they're giggling, laughing, crying, falling, feeling the pain of a scratched knee and the joy of climbing a tree. And I've taken so many pictures of my kids playing outside because it makes me feel young again. I, I delight in the simple pleasure of children connecting to God's creation. I have a little confession I need to make to you all. I've become quite fond of my machine, maybe too fond of it. It is now, for me, a a 60-minute-a-day habit. Don't don't leave the church. Your habits are worse than mine, all right? But listen, for 60 minutes a day, this is the way I've been medicating myself from the strain of the day, from your problems, okay? <laughs> Weighing down on my shoulders, and I'm like, oh, halo, take me to another universe. Okay. That's just me trying to project my guilt off, but I have to own up to this. It has become the thing that I'm, I'm anxious to get my kids to bed and for my wife to fall asleep so I can have an hour of me time killing total strangers online. And a few of the people at this church giving them private lessons. And and you know, the thing is, I feel that it's starting to take over a part of me that it shouldn't. And here's what I mean by that. And it takes some self-awareness to see this in yourself. That 
it's become a primary form of recreating when I believe it was never meant to be. And it's to the exclusion of some natural pleasures, which I've stopped doing because I've got this other thing that helps me unwind the tension. I used to go for walks once a week with my neighbor. I don't do that anymore, and I miss it. I think we should start again. You know, just walking a few miles in the brisk cold, it's amazing how that connects you to the simple goodness of God. Talking with a friend while you're doing that, a thousand times better than doing it alone. I used to run every morning. I got to get back into it. Somebody even gave me a free treadmill. It's sitting in my garage, and I'm looking forward. I shouldn't say looking forward. <laughs> I should be doing it now. The simple pleasure of moving your body, feeling the endorphins, feeling the tension melt away, that is a pleasure which God intended for us. How many of you find yourself speed reading to your children, speed bathing? All three of you kids get in the tub now and you assembly line them. Shampoo, shampoo, shampoo. Scrub, 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 scrub. Close your eyes, water's coming. Get out. I have bathed three of my children one time in five minutes. That's just, and one of them had long hair. This is not right. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to sit there with your kid. They're only that age once, you know? And you're supposed to just relish those moments, but instead, you're so, you're so bent on advancing everything so fast. I want to get you to bed so that I can do my second business. Who told you you need a second business? So I can do this, so I can do that, so I can do this, so I can do that. And all these things which God put in your life to fill your life are becoming distractions to these other things that we think are so important. The simple, natural Pleasures. That's some of you, I'm sorry, some of you might legitimately need a second job. I, I don't want to criticize you, but weigh carefully the cost to you. What does it make you feel about the people God deposited in your life? Are you always in a rush? Do you resent the cost of having your children or your spouse wanting to talk? And you're like, I wish you would stop talking so I can do other things. Pause and think about that sentiment. It's terrible. Shame on us. Shame on me. I'm sorry. Just a little (laughs) picture of the, uh, just in case you were missing the point. Here's another way we need to cut down, though. Is I think we need to just cut down on quantities of things. I really believe it's a law of, of the world that with quantity comes a diminished ability to appreciate something. Right? Let, me, let me give you some. This is my first time doing this. A visual aid, a physical one. This is a dinner plate. A good-sized dinner plate. This is a family-sized serving platter. But this, unfortunately, is the container you're more likely to receive your meal in when you go to a restaurant. I went out to dinner with Jeannie on Friday night, and this is the size of the dish that my dinner came in. I'm like, what is this nonsense? I, I don't get out very much to restaurants for dinner. And like, this can't be right. We, we didn't order the family portion. And I was supposed to eat that by myself. Well, let me tell you something about these two plates. When you fill this with the same food as this, the taste doesn't change. But by the 18th shovel full in your pie hole, you can't even taste it anymore. 
There's something called nerve attenuation where, you know, it's like right now, do you feel your shirt on your back? No, you don't, because your body compensates for this constant stimulus. By the time you're done shoveling this in your face, you're no longer enjoying anything. You're just getting full. It might as well be soybean protein product in a tube. You're just trying to get the stomach to stop going, give me more. And there's something about a smaller portion that allows us the freedom to savor life. I want to show you some, one other thing. Because I learned something when I went to Spain to visit Pastor Matt. I went to a cafe with him, and this is a sissy cup they gave me. All right? This right here. And can I just say, this is big for Spain. I mean, this is like a, a mug in Spain. I'm like, I'm in a dollhouse? What is, what? I thought it was a practical joke. I smelled it, and I tasted it, and I almost fainted. Did I shed a tear? I might have one, maybe one little one just came out of the side. This is an American coffee mug. This is my Starbucks porcelain mug that looks like the disposable cup. And I'll drink sometimes three of these in one workday when I was drinking coffee. Do you see the difference? Here's the thing. When you're drinking coffee out of this, it's just medicine. You, you can't enjoy this much coffee. It's just keeping you awake because you don't know how to go to bed at night. Spaniard can nurse one of these for an hour and a half. I know it doesn't seem possible. I took my first one and chugged it. I was like, where's the rest of them, you know? <laughs> I thought they'd come in six packs. But to be able to sip something like this for an hour and a half and talk to a friend, I want you to think about that experience because truly... Savoring the one small cup introduces us to a different kind of deep satisfaction, a gratitude, an appreciation for life, because sometimes the blessing comes in the quality of something, not simply in the quantity of it. You know, Gene and I went out for dinner on Friday because some really special friends invited us out, and uh, they, they, they set us up with a dinner reservation. They paid for our meal. They paid for movie tickets. It was such an unexpected gift. And as we're eating in this fancy restaurant, which I probably would never take my wife to on my own dime, you know, she was enjoying herself. And, and then we looked at each other. We caught each other's eyes and we said, you know what's so special about this? It happens twice a year. That's how often I take my wife out to eat. Don't, don't get mad at me. I just That's how it turns out. You get four kids. It's kind of like no one will watch all four of your kids. So it's, it's like, you know, it's special because it's rare. And we thought about it. If we went out to eat all the time, what we'd be talking about is, oh, this isn't as good as the rigatoni we had at the other place. And we become food critics, food connoisseurs, instead of food eaters and appreciators. It wouldn't matter if you served me a slab of spam. The fact that I'm in this fancy place with my wife, eating out and for free. The fact that it's so rare made it so delightful. And we realize that's why we treasure these moments. Then we walked two doors down from this restaurant to a place called Ethel's. Any of you ever been to Ethel's? If you like chocolate, you need to go to Ethel's. It's a pilgrimage to Mecca for you. And I went to Ethel's, introduced to us, in fact, by the first, for the first time by the couple that, that pay for our dinner. And uh, I walked in, and I like chocolate, but I like to eat the three-pound brick of Hershey's with almonds. I'm that kind of chocolate guy, you know? You walk into Ethel's and you pay $3.50 for a little piece of chocolate, the kind you get in one of those assortments for Valentine's Day. And you're thinking, it better be dang good. 
And so I got one for me and one for Jeannie because that was our budget right there. Like, you each, we each get one. And we sat down on the couch and we savored and nursed that one piece of chocolate for 15 minutes of conversation and fellowship. And as that, that piece of chocolate was going down the back of my throat, I could taste it for the next 10 minutes. It was just, and maybe that's because I paid so much I, I needed to think that, but <laughs> I got to tell you, sometimes just cutting down introduces a whole different kind of pleasure which God intends for us. Some of us have a quantity disorder. We don't understand that small is the new big. It is. And if you could just cut down, and this is not about weight loss or any of that silliness. I'm not talking about body image. I'm talking about the fact that you need to be able to savor the goodness of what God's giving you in order to allow it to produce this response of gratitude that's a life habit. Let me give you a last thing. You need to bow down. You need to slow down. You need to cut down. But you also need to bow down. Do you see there in verse 5, it says, all these things are legitimate and can be and should be received with thanksgiving. But listen, here's the catch. Because it is all consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now, don't take that the wrong way. That doesn't mean anything you accept, as long as you pray, that makes it okay. What it means is it is received as a valid, legitimate gift from God because it is a part of your relationship with him. Because in the receiving of it, you are acknowledging this God. See, I don't believe receiving a gift or this discipline of celebration is just about enjoying something. It's about acknowledging the one who has made it possible. It's the difference between, wow, this dinner was yummy, and thank you for making me this dinner. Do you understand that you could visit someone's house and you can gush on and on about how good it tasted to you and realize that the whole time you never once thanked the person who gave it to you? I think this is the problem with some of our hearts, is that we are so good at enjoying life and so poor at acknowledging the one who brings joy to our lives. And it says what consecrates the gifts we enjoy is that we actually pause to say thank you, to acknowledge that this, this didn't fall from the sky. It's not simply the product of my own hard work. Yes, you'd have a job. Yes, you go to work every day early. You work out. You do all that. But God could take your legs tomorrow. He could take your life the very next day. You have no control over that. Everything comes from him. Everything. Everything. And this, this discipline of celebration is ultimately about acknowledging God in all things. It is not found just in pleasure itself, but in, in slingshotting around that pleasure to realize someone gave this to me and he is worthy of my gratitude. And as you acknowledge him, something happens. That experience of pleasure fortifies your soul instead of poisoning it. You take away that element of acknowledging God, and the more pleasure you experience, the more seared your soul will become, the more entitled and selfish and greedy and numb. But you acknowledge God, and pleasure will actually build you up spiritually. It seems mystical, but that's in fact the way it happens. That's why I believe that one of the godliest things we could ever say is thank you. It's one of the most spiritual and humble sets of words because it acknowledges that all the stuff that I love about my life, it came from him. It didn't just happen. It came from him. 
You know, it's a no-brainer to pray before a meal. And I'm going to close my talk here with this last G.K. Chesterton quote. And if you like Chesterton, what I've read for you from him, go out and get some of his books. They are fascinating, enjoyable reads. I don't agree with all his theology, but I love the way he uses words to provoke us. He says, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and pantomime. Not sure about that last one. Grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. I think that's powerful. I don't think I need to unpack that too much. It's this idea of saying grace before everything that you receive from God to acknowledge in him that even as I jog this morning, it's not just the endorphins that makes me feel the high. It's you. And you gave me the legs to run this morning. And you gave me the freedom to do it. And you gave me 900 bucks a month for a lifetime membership and whatnot. Are you with me? It is the acknowledgement of God that delights him and nourishes us. And so why before you do anything, is it a weird thought to pray before a movie? I just watched 007. I'm not entirely sure how much redemptive value there is in Quantum of Solace, but is it possible that you could even say, Lord, I can't believe I'm out to a movie with my wife. Thank you. I'm about to receive this entertainment with gratitude in my heart. I hope that's the way we learn to live. So that Thanksgiving rolls around, it's not just about dysfunctional family gatherings, a little awkward touch football, and then having to tell a bunch of people, yes, I am thankful for my house and my health and blah, blah. But I hope when Thanksgiving rolls around each year, it's just the culmination of a year of living and acknowledgement of God. Amen? Here's what I'm going to have us do as we close out today. For the next five minutes, okay, I'm going to have you pause to think about one commitment you're going to make in your life to begin practicing this discipline of celebration. Whether it's in the area of slowing down, cutting down, or bowing down, I want you to think about one tangible commitment you're ready to make, and then I want you to talk to one or two people around you, and hopefully it's not really deeply private. If it is, find a second one that's less private, and just share with them. Just because sometimes voicing it, saying it out loud, makes it real, makes it like, I, I've really got to follow through on this now. Right, would you do that? So in the next five minutes, we're going to have some music playing in the background. And then when we're done with the five minutes, we're going to sing a couple songs to close our worship service. But I think it's important for us to respond practically and obediently to the Lord. So think about a commitment you'll make. Turn to a neighbor and share that with them. Can we do that? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.